0: Hey, it's episode number 10 of Presentable, and I'm your host, Jeff Veen. Today, a special guest, preeminent Apple pundit and blogger, John Gruber. He writes the website Daring Fireball and, until recently, was part of the team producing the iOS app Vesper. We talk about design decisions behind that product, business models in the App Store, and much,
1: much more. I have uh, one small piece of (laughs) very unusual... (laughs) A very unusual request up front. If the doorbell rings, I'm going to have to run and get it because I have an iPhone coming and it was supposed to it actually was here yesterday and, and through a confluence of bad circumstances nobody answered the door. So oh. if we don't get it today, they're they're like I have to like go to the airport or something. <laughs> That's no problem.
0: I uh I now live in a building here in London with a doorman and I don't think I can ever go back. Oh my god, he signs I, for everything and sends me a, an i
1: message when they arrive. We have been looking for a new place to live here for I, I was going to say two years. It might actually be more than two years. And it is, it's not even like, Philadelphia is not like a crazy real estate town. It is not like a boom town. It's doing well. It is thriving. And there's lots of new construction. Um, But there's just like, our price range is like this no man's land. of mm-hmm. like nice, but not like, you know, <laughs> unlimited budget. And I said to Amy, I was like, I think we should consider, you know, there's a couple of really nice, high rises we should think about it you know like we don't have a lot of kids we don't you know, we only have one kid we don't mm-hmm. we don't need a lot of bedrooms yeah i would love to have a, a doorman and she her whole reason of not wanting to live there is she doesn't want to look at a doorman every day <laughs> <laughs> she's like when i come back from the gym i do not want the doorman to see me <laughs> <laughs> i think I, uh, I think it would be luxurious it is it is it's really nice
0: uh, and like you know the plumber comes i don't have to be around doorman lets him <laughs> in it's great right. Yeah. I'll talk to Amy if you want. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So before we get into sort of meat of what we're going to talk about, i want to tell you a little story. Okay. And that is, uh, it was uh, 2009. We were starting Typekit and we made two lists. On one list were all the fonts that we wanted. So I had, you know, Myriad and Proxima Nova and all of this. As a sort of prioritized, all right, here's what we're going to go get. The other list was websites that we wanted to get fonts on. We were ambitious, <laughs> right? So we had New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Facebook, right, all of this. And I insisted that we put Daring Fireball on that list because I knew you have strong opinions about design and you hate Flash as much as we do. And, and you know, you talk about typography all the time. And to this day, no fonts on Daring Fireball. I know. And at this point, it's almost embarrassing,
1: really. Uh... <laughs> it's still Verdana. I mean, you know, it looks sharp. It's well set. Yeah, it's overdue. We're Long overdue. It's years overdue. I don't know what I'm going to do, though. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to update it. I'm going to just get real fonts. I'm going to make everything bigger. But um, Kotki's recent redesign really was a kick in the pants. That's like, inspiring. Man, he's like redesigned like three times before I did. And now he's got one that ticks all the modern, you know, Built to last, I think, I think that the new design, because it's, you know, works on phones, scales, yeah. has nice fonts. Yeah, 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 yeah. Built
0: to last, though, he is on the sort of trendy gradient side of things, the sort of montage of colors and all of that. But I think it's yeah. beautiful. But, yeah. yeah. Okay,
1: well. My point on the typography, though, is, too, is I do want a better font than Verdana. And Verdana doesn't even do the things I'm about to say, but it's like my, my request, my, my desire is if I'm going to go with real fonts, I want all the control over fonts that I'm used to having in print. Like I want to be able to choose between lining numerals and, and, and proportional numerals, you mm-hmm. know, and I want up, upper and lowercase numbers, et cetera. Old, what do they call them? Old style figures. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you, I don't know. And, and you can do all that stuff. Uh, it just comes at a cost of bandwidth. Right. Cause, um, you know, well, all the modern browsers support all that stuff and, uh, but the fonts get quite large when you have so many glyphs in them. So it's always a trade off. But I guess, you know, compared to some of your competitors, you've got plenty of bandwidth to spare. I know. I know. <laughs> uh, so this is a good day for us to talk. I got my phone today. Oh, what'd you got? I got, I'm, first time ever, I'm in the Plus Club now. Got the 7 hmm. Plus. I got um, the matte black.
1: And um, wow, I love it. But That's exactly the phone I have in my hand right now. But that's not my phone. Did you order a you personal phone? Yes, I ordered a personal phone. I am literally waiting for it as we speak, at this moment. Uh, I got the jet black four point seven inch. Oh,
0: so you stayed with the
1: smaller one? I did. Most of my friends are always
0: surprised that I didn't have one because I have these. You know, I'm very, I'm a very large person. I'm very <laughs> tall, and they're like, "Why don't you just have the big phone?" Um, and so finally, it was the camera that pushed me over. I just want to take pictures of my kids. So. Um, and I did that at, at uh dinner tonight and they're beautiful. It's great. It I is, love it the is a compelling, compelling camera. Yeah, the zoom is is remarkable. So anyway. And I and I was upgrading from the six, so that was a huge deal. That's remarkably fa- fast and and nice. And you, now you um I saw this piece you wrote a couple of days ago now, uh as we're recording, um, about what Farhad Manju wrote in the New York Times. Yes. Um, and this is a good segue for us to talk about design a little bit here, because he was sort of arguing that, uh, I mean, the way I sort of interpreted it was the lack of, um, the, what's the right way to put it? The lack of, I guess, dazzle is what they had in well, the Well, that headline. was
1: the original word in his headline. So it's not unfair to say dazzle. The, right. the, the original headline on his piece was, here's what's missing from the new iPhones, dazzle. Right. And then they changed it in, subs- you know, at some point in their editing process, they changed it from dazzle to dazzle cutting edge design.
0: Right. And you pulled out that old quote from the, that was when the Steve jobs on the iPod, iPod release. Right. And we, so this, that's funny. It was like 2003 or 2004 or something. And that was right in the middle of when we were sort of getting started with adaptive path. And we use that same quote in all of our presentations about design being not how it looks. It's design being how it works. And I think that gets to the, to the heart of what's going on with these new phones is that like, from my perspective, having been with a six for two years, every single thing about this phone is better. In, you know, yeah. in every possible way, uh, with the exception of some sort of, you know, external uh, indication that that, um, you know, the case has changed or anything like that. So. Right. But this idea of, of that I want to talk to you a little bit about today is this this um, this notion of going uh, beyond uh, how something looks to not just uh, how it works, but maybe even a step further into design being a process for what the thing is. And what the thing should be. Because we wanted to talk a little bit about your experience with Vesper.
1: Sure. The note-taking app that you... uh, How long ago did you start that? So this is 2016, 2015. I guess it was 2014. Uh, Is that right? Or maybe it was even 2013. (laughs) I don't don't remember. (laughs) Uh, Let me... (laughs) The years blur by. Hold on a second. Let me see here. Might have been 2013. And what was your motivation
0: to get into um, really so- like software development? I mean, you hadn't done that in years, right?
1: Yeah, it was 2013 when we came out with it. Uh, not really. Um, so what happened was, wow, that is amazing. 2013. So what happened was in 2012, uh, late in the year, I think it's October. There was a conference that had been going for a few years in in Montreal, uh, run by a friend of mine, Guy English, uh, and a few of his a few other people too. I I, I shouldn't say it was just him, but anyway mostly drew from the independent mac web and developer community people who've been long time making indie apps for the mac for ios people like me who write about such things right you know maybe 100 150 attendees and i've long been friends with brent simmons who's developed a whole bunch of things over the years but maybe most famously net newswire the rss reader and a whole bunch of other stuff yeah. but i've been friends with him since way back when and NetNewsWire and Daring Fireball, we both have always thought were sort of siblings in a weird way because I started NetNews, well, I started Daring Fireball right around the same time NetNewsWire 1.0 came out, and um, this is a long digression. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff. But one of the things that I thought was so interesting was that I started Daring Fireball using the Movable Type content management system, and the, what I did was I installed it on my server. And I had all the defaults and the default templates, and I I didn't publish, you know, the site wasn't live yet. But this is how I went about designing during Fireball, is I looked at their defaults, and I tried to study how the, I knew, you know, I was already a web developer, I knew HTML. I looked at everything Mm -hmm. in in their default templates. And then instead of just taking stuff out, I started from scratch with nothing and then started adding. I started, you know, started with literally a blank Thing and then said, well, we gotta have the articles. So right. here, I'll put a list of articles and built it up from there. Whereas I think most people go the other way is they started with the default template and started taking things out or changing things. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I'd never put back in is I never put in an RSS feed because I couldn't figure out what the hell anybody would ever want to use this for. <laughs> and then Net Newswire came out and I was like, oh, that's what it's for. Okay, I'll put an RSS feed on Daring Fireball. So anyway. It goes back all the way to the, my friendship with Brent goes all the way to before Daring Fireball even existed. Right. Um, always wanted thought he's somebody who I could work with and would love to work with. And Brent's idea was Brent was leaving his current job at a place called Glassboard, um, which was sort of like a proto, uh, slack. Glassboard was sort of like slack before there was slack. It was sort of the same idea and they just didn't quite get it right. But it were, obviously it was a very good idea at the right yeah. time. Yeah. 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 Um, and so he brought me and uh, another friend of us, Dave Wiskus, who's more of a designer, and said, here's my idea. I would like the three of us to work together and make an app. You guys design it. I'll, I'll do the engineering. And I don't even know what it is. And we all thought, this, this is great. I would do it. And it was something I could do, you know, certainly could do without. It wasn't like I would do it instead of Daring Fireball. It was something I could do. as sort of a nights and weekends, you know, odd hours, you know, right, in addition right, to right. Daring Fireball. So there was absolutely no risk for me. And it was somebody who I'd always wanted to work with. And um, I'd always been frustrated by the lack of, of what I thought was a good, solid notes app. Uh, and they were both like, yeah, that's it. Let's do that. And it went from there.
0: And so what, um, so Brent writing, uh, the
1: majority of the code, uh, Dave doing most of the design, I don't know, what was your role? We called it, uh, my title was director and the idea would be like, I, you know, what a director is to a movie I was to the app and it, the analogy is not that bad. I mean, I think more typically it would be called product manager. Yeah. I don't know, but yep. I think director is a little bit more cause it, if I s- certainly had an artistic input, you know, into the, the back and forth with Dave on the design, mm-hmm. And, you know, the analogy, it's, I don't want it to sound pretentious, but it's, you know, in the same way that that, that the director makes all of the, ultimately makes all of the final decisions on, on a film, but doesn't appear, you know, isn't an actor, didn't necessarily write the script, uh, didn't do the art direction, you know, the art director just, you know, all these people just report to the director. And that was sort of my role at Vesper.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that's a um, that's a role that with so I work with a lot of startups these days, and 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 they get to a certain size, and they realize that the two co-founders can't be making every product decision anymore, and so they look for this role that that we we often call head of product. And it's not really product management, and it's not really like creative director or head of design, but it's this in-between where you sort of own the whole user experience, but also kind of all the prioritization and, and the interpretation of the vision of the app or the product that they're making. It sounds a little bit like that, head of product. Yeah. 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 And so was the idea yours uh, to,
1: to do a note-taking app? sort of it 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 and it you know like anything it it evolves and and the idea at first was a little bit less of a note taking app and a little bit more of a of a halfway between a to-do list and a note taking app mm-hmm. um and and it, even before 1.0 came out it's just as you know as almost in any case any project it just sort of by the time we got to 1.0 it was more it was definitely a note taking app not a really a to-do list yeah. Yeah.
0: And so how would you, uh, what, what was the process like?
1: It was pretty interesting. And and one of the reasons it was interesting was that we had time before Brent was actually available. Um, I forget when Brent actually started writing code, but Dave and I had at least two or three months before Brent was available to actually do anything. So we designed first without any, you know, it wasn't like, Hey, let's start coding it up. And, um, so Dave and I just went back and forth. I mean, and I would say, Ninety-eight percent of it was all done in iMessage, where Dave would show me something, and then I would, you know, comment, and then he'd, you know, just paste after paste after paste of of mockups, yeah. you know, back and forth in iMessage, um, until we, you know, felt like we had it. Until we had like a a sort of pixel perfect. Here's every, you know, here's everything the app's supposed to look like to give to Brent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The only thing we didn't really have, and maybe I think there's a couple of more tools just in the last two or three years that really would have helped with this is that we didn't really everything was a static screenshot we didn't have anything that really um we had just verbal descriptions of the motion you know what should it look like when this you pick this up to read you know to drag to reorder this you know animations and stuff like that right physics model, so to speak yeah yeah
0: yeah i've i've uh worked with some teams that use uh just use keynote for that to be honest yeah
1: i know i we thought about it we really we almost did but it it just turned out that we didn't have to because it ended up that brent got it you know we didn't really have a, a hard time getting brent to get it just by us telling him what it should be like and then giving you know after we'd get a build that had it and being able you know it actually worked out pretty well But I can see how other development teams might have that problem where you really have to give the developer something that actually shows the animation.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, the level of of back and forth communication is also that that you were just describing. It's not something that every team enjoys, even in the era of Slack. You know, there's still plenty of... um, designers that need to write about their design to get engineers to be able to build it. Things like that. That happens all the time. Yeah. So you wrote about sort of fast forwarding to, uh, you guys are no longer doing Vesper, um, and made the decision to sort of wind things down and you wrote about it. And first of all, you wrote about it really well, sort of, um, it's one of the things that I, I think a lot of the founders I talked to overlook is the ability to really sort of with, with, with clarity and passion write about their products. So uh, nicely done there. The sort of post-mortem that you wrote, you talked a lot about sequencing and prioritization. Yeah. As potentially even the, um, the, the downfall of, of why it didn't
1: become the sort of sustainable business that you thought. Right. Okay. The Mac has long supported. I mean, as long as there's, Macs have been connected to the internet. I mean, I, I mean I've mean, i been using them since then. Remember when you had, used to have to get the Mac H, or what was it called? Mac uh, T, TPC IP. There was like an extension you'd have to get. It wasn't even from Apple. <laughs> like, to, get, to right. get your Mac on the internet, you had to have like this open source extension and restart your Mac. And then eventually Mac, you know, they... They built they, it in. You know, as as, obviously, it yeah. was going to be built into the system. Um even when before the mac supported tcpip networking i mean nobody even thinks about tcpip anymore I, I had to like not. pause to think about it because, because <laughs> it's like our watches have it right our watches speak tcpip it's just everywhere it's like oxygen um ever since the internet macs connected to the internet there's been a market for we used to be called shareware now most people just call it indie mac software but mm-hmm. software that costs at least 20 bucks and up and and sells in quantities such that a developer could make a living at it, you know, that somebody could actually make a living just selling their own Mac software. Um, and to this day, that is still true. And when the App Store came out for iOS, there were a, a lot of people who thought, hey, now we can do this on, on a much larger audience, you know, instead of tens of millions of Mac users, hundreds of millions of iPhone users. And... It it obviously it quickly became clear that the prices were going to be way lower on the app store for the, for the phone than for the Mac. It was immediately but, at like a race to the bottom, right? And I think at first there was a you know, okay, this is we can accept this because there's so many more people and it is a smaller device and the apps tend to be smaller in scale. So maybe instead of twenty, twenty five, thirty dollars an app, it's going to be four, five, six, seven dollars an app. Um but that turned out to not be true and it got to 99 cents very very quickly which even at you know multiplied by a large number of users real is really hard i mean to when you're talking about having you know wanting to make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in revenue to run a company with a hand even just a handful of employees um and oh there's there's the doorbell your new phone is here we'll take a little break this week's episode
0: of presentable is brought to you by fresh books. Hey, if you're listening to this podcast, there's a really good chance that you're a designer. And that means you probably have done some freelance work. I have myself and I'll tell you what, I always loved doing the work and I've really enjoyed getting paid, but it was that bit in the middle that drove me crazy. Having to send out invoices to my clients, get them to pay me follow up when they didn't, it was a nightmare. Well. FreshBooks are on a mission to help small business owners save time and avoid stress that comes from running their businesses. And that all starts with pain-free invoicing. FreshBooks has created a super intuitive tool that makes creating and sending invoices totally simple. It takes just 30 seconds to create and send an invoice and you can add your company logo for that extra professionalism for the way you want your invoices to look. FreshBooks will give your clients tons of ways to pay you. They allow you to receive payments by credit card and integrate with services like PayPal. And this can seriously improve how quickly you get paid. In fact, FreshBook customers get paid up to five times faster on average. And this part is really great that you can see whether or not your client has looked at the invoice. So no more excuses, no lost invoice. And you can set up an automatic late payment reminder as well. So they just keep getting the email saying, Hey, my invoice how about it and that's just the invoicing freshbooks has a lot of other features to help you keep organized you can easily keep track of your expenses and if you're in the u.s you can automatically import your bank transactions for easy reconciliation they have great reports you can easily see who owes you what tons of third-party integrations they do time tracking they have amazing customer support getting started on freshbooks is extremely simple you don't really have to be a numbers person at all. Freshbooks is offering a 30-day free trial to listeners of this show, no credit card required. To claim your 30 days of unrestricted use, go to freshbooks.com/presentable. That's freshbooks.com/presentable, and when you sign up, please enter presentable in the how you heard about us section so Freshbooks knows you came from this show. Thank you so much to Freshbooks for sponsoring Presentable and Relay FM. What was I saying? Yeah, about apps in the App Store and pricing.
1: About that race to the bottom. We thought in twenty thirteen that we could still buck that trend. And part of the goal with Vesper was to maybe put a, a flag in the ground and say, you know, hey, you you can do if you do it if you do it well enough, you can do an iOS app that, that can generate enough money to run a company just by selling the app up front. And I think we we're wrong. I don't think the iOS App Store works like that at all. I think to make a long story short, iOS apps and mobile apps in general, because I think it's just as true for Android, you should treat them like websites and they should be free to get on the phone. And then any money you make needs to come as like an in-app purchase after that. What do you think caused that? You know,
0: I've thought about this for years, right? Uh, Ever since the App Store launched. Was it literally just a form factor that, you know, these aren't applications, they're just these little apps and we're putting them on our phones? Or was it that it was truly for the first time we... Left, uh, you know, computer software being largely for professionals, and now it's just stuff for people's lives, consumers everywhere, and they're certainly not going to pay, you know, twenty, thirty, forty dollars for a
1: for a piece of software. I I don't know where I think, I, I, I think it's one of the most fascinating questions of the last ten years. I I really do because I and I think it's multivariate. I don't think any single explanation uh, explains it, but I think almost, but the fact that the, the the truth is though that almost every single one of the many variables all points towards free Mm -hmm. all of them. Yeah. So I think you're right. That part of it is that the diminutive form factor makes people think that it, they should be free. I think that there are, um, so many terrific apps from big, big companies like Apple itself, like Google, um, you know, you don't pay Twitter to get on Twitter. You don't pay, I mean, everybody. So Facebook is the most installed app in the world, right? Mm -hmm. There's no third party app that has more installations than Facebook. And it's probably, it might even be mathematically impossible to beat it. Right. Right. It's (laughs) it's that popular. They don't make you pay 99 cents to download it. And it's Facebook. It's an app that people use, you know, also use more than uh, almost any other app. And And, so, and uh, to generate billions of dollars in revenue. Yeah, exactly. And, so you're up against these big companies that are giving, absolute, you know, some of the most ambitious apps out. their free downloads, and then even on the other end, if you come out like us with a notes app and you charge, I think we charged four ninety nine at first. Four ninety. We we played around with prices four ninety nine, three ninety nine. We went to two ninety nine, um, and nothing really made a difference. Uh, until I'll, t- <laughs> I'll get to this. Until we said we're done. We're closing <laughs> closing the app. <laughs> so for now we're going to make it free <laughs> we got more downloads after explicitly saying this app is no longer being actively developed but now it's free if you want to check it out we got more downloads in 48 hours than we had as a paid app for three years so oh my god more proof that that free works uh the games are free the top games are free you know you, yep. you get you get candy crush you just download it and then you start buying after you're hooked on it um uh, and it just every, and if you have a notes app, if you have a three ninety nine 99 notes app, what happens is people are only going to look for it if they're not happy with the built-in notes app on, on their phone. And I, I don't know about Android. I know, but app, you know, Apple shipped a, an Apple notes app ever since the original iPhone. So I think there's a, still, it's much improved, but it's still, there's a lot that I don't like about it. Right, so right. But I, you are it, but, com- competing with the default. Yes. That, but we knew that going in because yeah. it was already there. Um, but then, what people do, and I, you know, this is just a hunch, but I'm, I'm convinced that it's true. Is people go to the App Store, they type notes or notes app or something like that, and then they start looking, and there's a list of results, and they start installing free ones until they find one that's good enough.
0: Though that is from a perspective of we're going to use the App Store as our marketing, as our distribution, right? Yeah. As opposed to doing it yourself and directing people to your to the downloads, where you have, I think, a, a lot more control over the message. Things like that, but
1: yeah. Oh, and the other, there is another factor. The other factor is, and I think it's very, very important, is on the Mac and Windows, you've long been able to download a free version of the app before you pay. You get a trial and it, you know, either gives you 30 days or two weeks or, you know, whatever. But there's some period where you Mm -hmm. can use it, kick the tires, see that it fulfills your need. And then they say okay your time period's up now you have to pay 20 bucks and then people say okay here you go 20 bucks because i used it the fact that the app store on on ios has never had that if it's a paid app you have to trust it enough to pay before you even get it downloaded i think is is a real deal breaker i really do and i think that's why the apps that are making money are the ones that are free downloads and then at some point there's some some impetus in the app to say okay you know if you want to get blank if you want to go to the pro model you you know click this button and send us 399 as a, a in app purchase right right and and now do you think apple's the fact that they
0: have the in app purchases is why they've never done uh, any sort of free trial mechanism
1: in the app store well i don't know because they didn't have they didn't have in app purchases at first either right. and the rules are always so heart inscrutable at some point where it seemed like the in-app purchases weren't really supposed to be used just to unlock the full version like the the thing you download for free is supposed to work in perpetuity like you and i still think it's a case that you can't just say the free app only works for two weeks and then you have to pay Mm -hmm. like there has to be some kind of minimum usability as an ongoing basis but i think it's one reason they haven't really gotten to that, and probably never will. Probably
0: not, especially now with the the subscription pricing that they're bringing into the App Store. Right. Has that launched now? Is that part of, part of iOS ten?
1: Yes, but I've I haven't never, seen any. I, yeah, I haven't <laughs> seen it. So that was my that was my, my hesitation
0: there. Did you guys think about subscriptions or any kind of service behind it?
1: Yeah, we totally did. We thought about you know. It, long story short we wound up we didn't make enough money with the i with the iphone app first and it just one thing led from to another from there and brent you know took a, a terrific job at the omni group uh, a long time developer of mac and ios software and they're they are they are certainly an exception to the norm where they sell their ios apps for i think like 20 bucks uh and do very well at it but that's they you know part of it is that they have this user base of people who are fanatically attached to their productivity apps yeah um and then, without Brent as a full time I mean brent didn 't quit, but without full time effort from him with only one developer, it just didn 't work out yeah. it, you know, but our idea was you know that we would switch from um, paid apps to like a twenty dollar a year subscription or maybe fifteen something like that in that range. You pay fifteen dollars a year, the apps are free, and if you 're paying. You can sync between the Mac, you know, a Mm -hmm. Mac app that we never got around to finishing and iOS and maybe like even a web version um, so that you could use it from any computer anywhere. So let's talk about subscriptions a little bit because I'm super interested in this as it
0: as it leads to so many of the choices that you make in the in the features for your. For the, for the products that you're working on. So Typekit is a good example. It's a subscription-based service. that, And, and the, the fundamental model was that you subscribe to the service. Uh, you All the fonts are included. You could use anything in the library, which was a huge shift for the type industry, as you can imagine. They were used to charging, you know, $100, $200 for a family, and then you own it outright. And we're saying, no, 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 we're going to pay you based on impressions. Right. and. There were, uh, I would say, when we first announced this, as many people saying, absolutely not, I, I own my fonts, it's, p- it's part of my tool chest, you know, this is what I use to do my work, I'm not renting fonts. As there were people saying, well, this would be fantastic, I get to explore and use all the dis- different typefaces and I keep paying for the service and, and stuff like that. And it, um, and it really sort of played out to be an incredibly effective way to let people separate the business decisions from their creative decisions. So they could just like, you know, plow through the library, turn things on, launch them and see how they look and all of that kind of stuff. But there was never a question that you were paying for essentially a a, um, a hosted service, right? That we maintained right. and new browsers would come. I remember um, just a couple months into, after we launched uh, Typekit, the iPad came out and only the mobile Safari at that time only supported on the iPad SVG fonts, which nobody knew anything about like what the hell are these? So we stayed up all weekend and figured out SVG fonts, converted our entire library and launched it on the iPad. So they all worked automatically on Monday morning, which is, which would cost you a couple of web developers for every one of our customers. So there's clearly a value there, right? We are making sure that the web fonts always work and they load very quickly and you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. You're paying for a service. My impression of subscriptions coming to the, to the app store is that the service aspect isn't, like you don't, it's not required by Apple, right? That there has to be some sort of essentially a consumable thing as part of your offering. That you could just make a piece
1: of software and promise to improve it and charge a subscription fee, yeah? Yeah, I think so. And certainly is the way it should be, I think. And I realize that there are people who object to this exactly, it is exactly the same as with fonts, where it used to be you bought version 4.0 of BBEdit and you could use version 4.0 of BBEdit it doesn't no longer runs on the operating system right and it used to be you'd buy a copy of you know futura from adobe and you could use that copy of futura you know legally on one computer for you know decades yep move it from mac to mac as you upgrade um uh, and and the objections are exactly the same when software switches to subscription as as like designers who are like no way man i you know i own my fonts yeah yeah uh, that was certainly the case with,
0: you know, because we went from Typekit into Adobe and worked on the Creative Cloud. And uh, holy cow, did we hear from
1: people <laughs> about char- uh, starting to rent Photoshop? There are pros and cons. This is the thing that, and it's, it's you know, I think humans just struggle with it is... There are pros and cons to both models. There's definitely advantages to the old way of buying your software and buying your fonts, but there are also real, real advantages to the new way of the subscription model. And I think though the problem is that people form their mental model of how it works, and then it, it that is like solid, that is like solid ground that they stand on, and and this new way is is liquid, and it it mm-hmm. it just doesn't fit. Like, they've got, like, a mental model of how the world works when you're dealing with fonts, and renting them just isn't part of it.
0: Yeah, I mean... Same could be said for music, right? I mean, I felt yep. for a long time that uh, iTunes was such a mess because um, everybody at Apple was old and they all liked their record collections, their CD collections. They felt like they owned them, right? And then Spotify comes in, and all the kids are like, "Are you kidding me? I get every song in the world. Sign me up. That's great. I don't need, I don't need uh, all of those
1: Rolling Stone albums on my shelf. I just want everything." Yep. it's exactly the same. And you know, you know, look at Netflix. You know, uh, it's the same. Almost the same there, you know, instead of buying access to TV, you know, to these TV shows and then having a set of discs that you're really never even going to put in again, uh, you just pay every month and watch whatever, you know, whatever whatever, movies are on their list of movies they have this month. Yeah, that's right.
0: But yeah, I think you're right about the mental model of software. It's interesting to see what uh, Sketch has done. You know Sketch? Yes. Um, yes where they have clear. now a yearly licensing fee, right? They charge $100 a year. You're entitled right. to all the upgrades. Um, you pay every year. But if you cancel the software, the software doesn't stop working. Right. You just don't get to upgrade anymore. So that's interesting. That's very different from where Photoshop was, where you... Yeah. S- you stop paying and it stops working, um, and probably more importantly, you couldn't open your files anymore. And that's what I think people got most upset about. But yeah. uh, we did try to do a lot of work on trying to trying to be more like, say, Dropbox or or, or these these apps where you you don't think of the software so much as the value as but the service behind it. But I don't think Adobe has, with the exception of like you you know, Behance, you get um, you get portfolio sites and stuff like that. and Typekit, you get the fonts and stuff. But I don't think Adobe has really gotten all the way there to making it really a service with a subscription so much as just renting the software.
1: I think what the sketch guys are doing is very innovative. I think it is, I think they're going to, I think they are doing very well with it and should continue to, but I also think that they're deliberately being a little bit more friendly towards their customers. It is a sort of customer friendly model.
0: Yeah. And, And it, it really does kind of, it comes off as a licensing model around a promise for future development. Like, you've seen our yeah. track record. We release something every year. We're going to keep doing that, but um, but we need the support to be able to continue to do that.
1: Yeah, uh, and I think that that's, you know, it gets to the heart of what is so unique about software development compared to any of the other art forms, right? It's like you you keep working on, on a serious productivity app. You, there's need for, you know, nonstop development. It, it never ends. It's always being improved. And, and just things like supporting all the new features of the operating system. It requires, you know, annual development. That the, you know, pay once and keep getting updates forever doesn't make any financial sense at all from the developer's side.
0: What was that like with Vesper? So new versions of the operating system would come out and um, and you guys would have to sort of... Did you feel like it was mandatory to start supporting
1: all of the new stuff that was in each OS? To do it right, yeah. And that's obviously one of the ways we fell behind. Like, there's a lot of stuff that's come out in iOS 9 and 10 in particular. Well, 10 is, you know, brand new. But even iOS 9 last year, there's a lot of sharing stuff that we obviously should have supported. And we just didn't have the development time to support. We lost a lot of time the first year. I wrote about this, but I'll, I'll mention it, that... We had it. We we did version 1.0 before iOS 7 was public, which was the big. That was the big redesign, visual refresh of the operating system, and it wasn't really because we were anticipating it. A lot of people accused me because you know me at Daring Fireball. I often have insight into what's coming from Apple. Mm-hmm. Um, it looked an awful lot in many ways like iOS 7. It looked a lot more like an iOS 7 app than it did what most iOS apps looked beforehand with, you know, fake leather textures and 3D buttons and a lot of, you know, physical depth to the different elements. I don't mean to interrupt it, you,
0: but can you even fathom how bad that looks now? Like, do you go back and look at iOS 6 and just be like,
1: oh, my God. Well, that's really where we were coming from. We, we Dave and I in particular, really, you know, we were like, what, sh- you know, what should we make this look like? And we really kind of deconstructed where, where apps had gone. And we, we kind of grossed ourselves out by like sort of <laughs> studying them. We just felt like, you know, we've we've take we've all chased a fad way too far. You know, we've got lamb chop sideburns, you know. Like like sideburns as a, as a fashion are one thing, but like we've taken them to like 1968's ridiculous, you know, uh, uh, you know, maximum. And we're like, let's rethink this and um, came out with a design that was that was much more in line with where Apple was going to. And it was more I think just I think a lot of people saw, hey, this needs to be, a I, it, it, again, we didn't have any, we didn't know, but I think every, you know, we we thought, we came to the same conclusion that I think Apple did, but it wasn't really an iOS 7 app, and to really be an iOS 7 app, we really had to spend that whole summer kind of redoing it, and we sort of spun our wheels, like instead of spending time immediately doing a Mac app, we spent the first three, four, five months after iOS 7 was unveiled doing a really good iOS 7 version of the UI. So, so in hindsight, I think if we, had, if we had known that iOS 7 was coming, it would have been even more reason for us to do the Mac version first and have a Mac version at 1.0, and then we could have done the iOS 7 version of, of the app knowing what iOS 7 really was. With
0: sort of comparable
1: pricing then as well for a Mac app. Well, right. I think what we would have done is probably charge either 15 or $20 for the Mac app. Right. And I think, you know, and in hindsight, I, I wrote about this, I think that, you know, We did launch with an awful lot of publicity because I have this big soapbox of daring fireball, and surely uh, most of the people who bought Vesper were people who read daring fireball. I think we would have ended up with very similar number of users, but instead of number of users times four ninety nine, it would have been number of users times twenty, and it would so it would have been four times the revenue, which really would have been the difference between, you know, this is actually if we really you know consider what we should be paying ourselves, um, we're in the red. To, compared to hey you know this is actually off the ground this is a legitimate business yeah
0: yeah and then i would imagine over the years being able to bring in some kind of service component subscription yes. component or something like yeah. that but that was only in retrospect
1: only in retrospect yeah although i think i should have i do i i really do beat myself over it i really feel like if i had really thought it through i should have realized in 2013 that paid ios app oh ios apps were a dead end that we should have, you know, known that the iOS app should be free, and therefore based everything, you know, based everything our plans on that. I still think there's a way to make money from free to install iOS apps, but we didn't, we didn't have that, you know, plan. The sort of
0: unlocking a pro version or yeah. or whatever or whatever. Mar- right. Marco's been experimenting with that. Marco Armit on um, Overcast, his yes, podcast uh, player. It's um it's interesting. He's kind of gone through a whole variety of different models i I really like this perspective though that doing the free app and then in-app purchase to unlock pro features means that the vast majority of your users are using a subpar version of your app right
1: yes so it's tricky it's it's tricky that's for sure yeah and there's little things too and and some of the things only last temporarily so he one of the things he's got when you pay for the full version you can unlock a dark mode and so instead of having a, a mostly white interf- interface with black text, you get a mostly dark interface with white text, and a lot of people really like that. A lot of people, you know, it, it's, it's a surprisingly popular, and trust me, we got the same request for Vesper. It's a very popular thing. I get it, but because a lot of people, you know, and it's the same reason people love this night shift feature that we're on our phones all the time, and a lot of people really, really are bothered by the bright screen late at night. Um, and people, you know, one of the things people do late at night is listen to podcasts. And so yeah, to have, yeah. have this... But anyway, it, it you know, so he's got that. And I think he does believe that it prompted an awful lot of the people who paid for the, you know, hey, I'll, I'll pay you money for this free app, that dark mode did it. But those sort of things don't last long because there's a very, very strong rumor um, that iOS is going to add a dark mode system-wide. oh, And so yeah, you can't, yeah. you know, the, the the idea that you'd be able to charge for that isn't isn't going to last for long right right so you think you'll uh do it again i wouldn't i don't have any plans to but i would love to i do love making apps and it's it's you know it it, it's very fun and it's something i think i'm actually kind of good at so uh, you know but i don't i don't know with who or when or what yeah yeah
0: well it was a it was a fantastic app in that there's just well certainly in the indie um software development community there's this almost this pride at implementing all of apple's both apis and guidelines as as perfectly as you can you know what i mean by that like yeah. uh let alone setting a, a innovation on top of that or or a particular brand or, or personality or something i think you guys did a really good job at that um but i would imagine that's sort of part of the point isn't it yeah so what do you like right now who's doing good design who should we uh send people to go see what do you use for twitter I use the Twitter app
1: I know. really i i don't I use Tweetbot, and I would consider I consider Tweetbot to be my favorite iOS app that i've ever seen really? i don't really I actually use them on the mac too, but i don't really i don't really care for their Mac app as much anywhere near as much. I would never call it one of my favorite Mac apps because it's sort of to me feels like an iOS app that's running in a mac window. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a certain Mackiness to a good mac app
0: yeah well uh, the twitter I, another... the Twitter Mac app is just terrible. Oh, just awful. I've just
1: awful. Almost used the
0: website before I right. said
1: I think that's what I, I've often thought that that's why, I, that they, they just want you to use the website. So for example, here's here's an example. So at some point, three or four years ago, the Mac built in Twitter accounts into the system. You can, there's a thing in the system prefs uh-huh. where you can put your Twitter account and then you can get alerts on your Mac when, you know, pick and choose like, hey, do you want to get an alert when you get a DM or an app mention or something like that? And when you click those mentions, it doesn't take you to the Twitter app. Even if you have the Twitter app installed, it takes you to the website. Right. (laughs) Right? Right. So to me, and I talked to someone at Apple about that, and they were like, well, that's, you know, that wasn't really our call. (laughs) That You know, that came from Twitter. So I do think, I I really do think that's why the Twitter Mac app is not that good. That must have something to do with advertising or display advertising or something. I think the guys at TapBots, are. Just absolutely kicking ass with the I, the iPhone and iPad version of uh, Tweetbot.
0: How have they managed to survive in all of the
1: sort of developer fiasco with the history of Twitter and stuff? So I don't know the full story. Um, one reason is they are charging a real amount of money. Like uh, Tweetbot Four, I think is currently nine ninety nine. Uh-huh. I think that, and I think when it first came out, they had a four ninety nine temporary price. Now it's nine ninety nine. Um, and what they do, and this just shows how the App Store is messed up, is each time there's a new major integer.0 version of TweetBot, it's a new SKU in the App Store. So if you already own TweetBot 4, and when TweetBot 5 comes out, you have to go to the App Store and buy TweetBot 5 mm-hmm. and install it. There's a little bit of secret sauce that Apple uh, uh, added a couple of versions of iOS ago, where, where if you're from the same developer, the apps can see each other's data so for example, like, mm. uh, uh, Excel can see the, you know, the Excel iPhone app can see the, the, the documents from word. Cause it's com dot Microsoft, you know, S-
0: signed by the same company.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Signed by the same company. So you're, when you install this new version of TweetPot, you don't have to set it up from scratch. It can see like your accounts and stuff like that. Um, but you have to buy it and they do things the way they make it sort of like upgrade pricing is they create a bundle in the app store. Um, You know how, like, so if you have, like, three $10 apps in the App Store, you can Mm -hmm. create a bundle with all three of them and charge only 20 bucks. So they have a bundle (laughs) where you can buy TweetBot 3 and TweetBot 4 (laughs) for a certain price. But if you're already a TweetBot 3 owner, the App Store knows to subtract the money you've already spent from that so that you effectively get upgrade pricing, but you're rebuying an app that you already bought, (laughs) which is so crazy.
0: Yeah, it's clearly... Uh, compensating for the lack of flexibility in Apple's yeah. guidelines. And
1: so they're making do they're making, they're, uh, you know, succeeding by charging a real amount of money compared to other iOS apps and by having a, a devoted base of, of fans. Cool. I'll check it out. Um, I haven't used it. I've, um, I don't know.
0: I just, uh, I think I just got a little used to the, to the Twitter app, even though I, I feel like every time I open it, stuff has been shuffled around again and again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I know that,
1: uh, um... you know what, I mean, let me throw out, I'll throw out another one. So we mentioned overcast. Uh, uh-huh. there is another podcast app for iOS called Castro. It's from these guys at super top and I've been using it a little bit lately and they, it, it, it has a very distinctive look. It is definitely very designed, very well designed. Yep. So I would, there's another one that I would say people look at and, and the difference, like why would you use it instead of overcast is that Castro seems to be to me fundamentally built around, um, The notion of like your inbox of episodes you know and like so it's not just like a bunch you don't get a list of shows and then you go into the show and listen to it it's just like here it's almost like your inbox for email where it's from all different podcasts and you can just drag to reorder oh so that is nice just like if you're just heading out for a walk or a run or wherever you listen to podcasts and you just want to queue up like the next three episodes you're going to listen to it is the least fiddly interface i think almost possible like they've they've almost got that aspect of managing your your unlistened to podcasts down to the minimum and and it's a and that to me is a really compelling feature so just if we're doing shout outs for good well-designed apps i'll just say you know go check out castro good Yep. Thanks. Well, I know you have a new phone that just arrived. You probably want to go set it up.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I'll let you go. Um, but, uh, Hey, thanks so much. This was, um, was a great conversation. Um, you obviously daringfireball.net, and, um, everybody should go listen to the talk show. Uh, and you're Gruber on Twitter. Yep. Just Gruber. I feel like I got lucky on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I appreciate you being on the show, John. Thanks so much. (gasps) Thank you, Jeffrey. This has been Presentable, and I'm Jeff Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you have feedback or comments or questions or anything, really, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on the web at relay.fm slash presentable, or on Twitter at presentablefm. Thanks so much.